Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, July the 15th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, what keeps us from doing what we must do and what we must do to counter all of that? Sounds like a riddle. Well, I'll explain. Coming up next. Welcome back. And good day to you on this Thursday, July the 15th, 2021. I hope your day has been progressing just swimmingly, or certainly the way you would like it to progress. And as we are already through, oh my gosh, we're already almost a month into summer and officially almost a month in, just about a week short of that. And my goodness me, hasn't it gone quickly? I've said this several times on this podcast that the summer is almost gone and it kind of is in in a way. But I I do want to say that for some people on this planet, it's not been a good summer. It has been a summer of floods and wildfires and civil wars and assassinations and extreme heat temperatures and a number of other things that are rather unpleasant and uncomfortable in terms of from a standpoint of what goes on on this planet, you know? I mean, I talk about having people be uncomfortable and that it's necessary from a social perspective to be uncomfortable with the society you live in because if you're comfortable with that society that you live in you're literally walking on dangerous ground and on quicksand or on thin ice because with everything that goes on around you in the society in which you live you cannot possibly be okay with this unless you are super rich or extremely powerful or one of the ruling class Because this is not an existence for people to feel comfortable in, in the first place. There's so many headlines that I would love to get to. I'm going to try to skate, if you will, through a number of them that have come across over the last roughly, I don't know, a few hours or so um, from yesterday into today. And one of the things that has made the news is the um, Bakari, Bakara, let me just say his name properly, Bakayo Saka, Bakayo Saka, the 19-year-old, and that's something that's not usually being said on these news broadcasts when they mention this brother's name. He's 19. Can we just put that in there for a minute, please? Bakayo Saka, the 19-year-old man, Young boy, young lad. I mean, he's a young lad. I mean, he's, again, 19 years old. Babyface. Literally, he could be mistaken for 12 or 13. 19-year-old Bakayo Saka, the England football player who, among other football players, two other black football players on the England national men's team, were absolutely slated with racist abuse and death threats and all manner of other disgusting things 
came out today on Twitter and other social media cha- uh, channels to condemn social media companies, and I've talked about them a lot here the last day or two, uh, for failing to more forcefully deal with the people who have been racially abusing these three young brothers and others um, in the, um, you know, whether it's in the England team, whether it's in Premier League clubs or clubs anywhere in, across England or across Europe or anywhere. And so Bakaya Saka wrote a really good statement today about that. Uh, you can check it out on his Twitter feed at B-U-K-A-Y-O. I believe it's um, either underscore S-A-K-A-87 or it's B-U-K-A-Y-O without the underscore and then S-A-K-A-8-7. So I will go and find that out for you. I tell you, that might be the best thing to do. And then I'll give you the exact Twitter handle in which you can get him, um, give him your support, because I think uh, that's a brother who, and all, by the way, all the others too, by the way, let me just say, um, the, those brothers need our support. And I don't care where you are on the planet listening to this, you really do have to um, tell those young men that you love and respect them because they, I, I mean, I'm telling you, they absolutely um, will feel more, even more fortified by your love and support for them. And his Twitter handle is at Bakayo, that's B-U-K-A-Y-O, S as in Sam, A-K-A-8-7. So please go on Twitter and uh, go to his Twitter handle, his Twitter account, and send him a, a lovely message of kindness and, and, and love and support. Will you, won't you please? Same thing with Jaden Sancho. I gave you his Twitter account the other day and also Marcus Rashford. You know his as well. I've mentioned them. You can easily search them on Twitter and give him a note of support. Please. And that mural, um, there was a mural in Manchester that had been defaced overnight after England crashed out on penalties in that Euro final. And literally within 12 hours, not only was the mural of Marcus Rashford in Manchester, my goodness me, Marcus Rashford is a god in Manchester and he's absolutely worshipped there, except in the blue half of Manchester, of course where Manchester City play, the blue half of the town, if you will. Um, But other than that, Marcus Rashford is well-respected. He's a god, you know, and I don't like to say, use uh, deism, uh, deistic things for people because we are not gods in that way. We're all human beings. Um, So, you know, that kind of thing is not, is kind of overrated, but you know what I mean, metaphorically speaking. And that mural in Manchester, which had been defaced so badly with all this racist graffiti and all these poisonous and hateful messages, literally within 12 to 16 hours, had not only been repaired by the mural architect, the person who actually did that mural, which spans the whole side of a building. Literally, I mean, the, the whole mural on the bottom level of the mural is now covered with messages of love and well wishes and support for Marcus Rashford. 
And I have to say, in case I haven't said this before, because Lord knows, sometimes I have no idea whether I've repeated something. And then when I listen back to parts of the episode, I don't do this uh, very often, but when I do listen back, I do realize, damn it, you repeated that. (laughs) And you thought you hadn't said it already. But, you know, again, it's about getting a little older. I, I have to say, this mural was so touching to see all of this love and support. And if I have said this already in previous episodes, so I have, I'll say it again. If I haven't, I'm saying it for the first time. This was such an overwhelming outpouring of love and support. I cannot say how moving that was because you know that everyone, and again, I hate to say not all because again, I think a lot of people who come from the not all camp are doing F all about trying to stop this problem this grotesque evil problem that generates from human beings and also is buttressed and supported and generated by a system that has thrived because of that very system of people putting their necks on black folk. So the white rich male property owners and their families who is uber rich And their ancestors, who were the ones who enslaved us as black folk and brought us to the shores of Southampton in England, brought us to Liverpool in England, brought us to the Caribbean, brought us here and there and did the triangular enslavement trade and all of these things. And then brought us to other places, you know, Brazil or, you know, a number of other, you know, come on. I mean... This this is, I mean, hey, this happened. And, you know, let's not make any light of this. This is dead serious. And so it just reaffirms your belief in people because I believe in the goodness of people, but I am not naive and I am not wearing rose-colored glasses either. <laughs> As um, Lynn Anderson might say, I never promised you a rose garden. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, seriously, I never promised you a rose garden. And this podcast, by the way, is, is never promising rose gardens either. I mean, hey, there are, as I keep saying, two trillion podcasts out here that will be very merry and happy and gay and full of sunshine And when I say gay, I'm talking about in the happy sense. I'm not talking about human beings. And there'll be podcasts that are very, you know, merry and gay and bright and and all of those things. And you can go to those. I'm sure that you do, dear listener. But I do also thank you for listening to this podcast because it does mean the world to me. And I just wanted to say that on the way to saying that there are good people in the world and it's Every now and again, you know, you you see it. And it's usually, though, after something horrible and racist like this, horribly so. I mean, racism is horrible and racists are horrible. And it's usually after something like this, when someone is racially abused or whether there's someone who is, you know, victimized by rape, you know, I mean, victimized by or, you know, survivors of rape or people who aren't survivors, like Sarah Everard, for example. That's a quick example off the top of my head. And usually that, it it takes some act of hatred and evil and violence, like the things I've mentioned, that bring out the good people, 
So the good people then react to that and say, here we are, we're supporting you. But I only wish that in a great many instances, the good people were out there proactively. And I know that there are good people out there proactively doing things. I'm not saying that. But I am saying I wish that more good people were out there ahead of time. And I mean, that mural was absolutely powerful. Now with all of these notes, letters, I mean, scarves, flowers, hearts, boxes of freaking chocolate. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And I mean, I know that word's overused. So beautiful is the word I want to get to. What human beings, what we, as can he, I can't even talk because I am so moved by this. What we as human beings can do when we really bring the best of ourselves to something, to someone, to a particular cause, to something that lifts the people. And lifts their hearts and their spirits. That's what I'm talking about. And that mural and that overwhelming response of love to all of that hatred and evil that we saw and that those three brothers experienced. Two of them Manchester United players. Well, Jaden Sancho is going to become a Manchester United player. I think either, again, he'll be unveiled soon. Probably, I said this, said this previously. I said this on the previous episode or two. Probably on Friday or maybe next week. We'll see. But the point is, in the next few days, Jaden Sancho will be unveiled as a Manchester United player. And he and Marcus Rashford will be teammates. And both of them suffered the, this racist abuse. And I'm saying, as well as Bakayo Saka, who is an Arsenal player, and Arsenal will be playing against Brentford. I know that this means very little, if anything at all. It means nothing to those of you who do not watch sports, do not care for sports, and know nothing about the Premier League and don't care to. But I'm going to say it anyway. The Premier League in England will kick off on August the 13th. That's a Friday, no less. Friday the 13th. And Brentford, the newly promoted Brentford of West London, because that's where they're from, that's where they play, take on Arsenal, the North London side, in a London derby. And that's the first game of the season. And no doubt, Bakayo Saka will be in the lineup for Arsenal. Isn't that interesting? Just less than a month from now. And I really want to see the kind of, and hear the kind of reception that he will get. And I hope Brentford fans, being Brentford fans, I think are going to be very nice to him. Tottenham fans, no, not so much. And those of you know who I'm talking, know what I'm talking about, who are in the know about all this. Those of you who don't, I'm not going to waste your time or mine explaining it. Um, But I just have to say that because it's just interesting how the spirit moves and how things work in this world um, without going into any kind of, you know, holy rollership because I'm not a member of the Holy Roller Club. Um, and if you are, that's great. I got nothing against that at all. I got nothing against any of that. I mean, people will worship or or not worship and I'm fine with people 
worshipping and people who don't believe in a deity or a god or anything like that. I mean, that's well and good. People have a right to not believe in God and people have a right to believe in, in a god of some kind. Except if it's the god of sleaze or the god of hatred, you know, you know anyway, I'll go on and on. But the point is, is that that is interesting. And we'll see um, what this young man, how this young man's, uh, uh, how this young man is greeted. And also one thing to look out for uh, on the lines of the story is about the reception that players in the Premier League and across all of English football will get when they take a knee, because that is going to continue in the Premier League next season. And I believe also in the other English football leagues in the EFL, English Football League Championship Division and League One and League Two which are all three of those divisions below the Premier League, it will be very interesting to see how these fans respond in England because, again, you've got a load of racists in England. And I'll say this again. I'm from England, born and raised, grew up there. England is the most racist country on the planet. I have no problem saying it. I, you know, I mean, America is rough. And where do you think America got its racism from? Jesus, come on. Come on. Hello. And the and, and America got its the U.S. got its independence from guess where? Hello, I mean, come on now. And again, I'll say this now because in case I didn't say this before, most people in the world were rooting for Italy. There's no, there's no, I got no problem believing that. Most people in the world for this Euro twenty twenty tournament, and for those of you who don't know, the Euro twenty twenty tournament is a European tournament that gets played every what two years, every two years, every four years. I forget. Um, but the point is every four, every um, two years or whatever the heck it is, I don't remember. But the point, the point is, right? The point is that most people in the world for the final, they were rooting for Italy. Uh, I mean, come on now. That's not even close. Italy versus England, that's easy for most people because people know the history of England and they know the history of a country and a, you know, they call it Great Britain. Not nothing great about colonizing three fifths of the world, unless you're the person doing it. And even then, you know. But here's the thing: this is the issue, right? And so, people had no problem rooting for Italy, even though you know Rome um, was an empire unto itself and did all kinds of things that um, certainly are not great for sure. I mean, my goodness me, you know, not like they've got unclean hands. It's not like they've got clean hands, I should say. But, that, I mean, and there's a reason why more people in the world were supporting Italy and hoping they won than there were people in the world supporting England. There's, there's a reason for that. And it's tied to history. You know, I talked yesterday about history and, or the day before about history and how important it is. So, anyway, all of that is to say that there are good people who do care. And I just wish that more good people cared and did not wait to respond to some horror like this that happened. Same thing with Sarah Everard. And although there are people who were campaigning on these issues of ending violence against women of any group, of any background, any racial background, I, you know, there were hundreds of women that showed up. And I wish that there were more men, too. I don't think it was a women's only event. So why, why weren't more men out there while we're at it? That's a whole nother story at Clapham Common back in March or April of 2021. Where were all those men? 
Unless it were, and again, I'm not aware that it was an all-women's event. If it was, then I stand corrected, but I don't remember that. But the point is, is that we need to have all of us be out there proactively. And these police need to back off and stop arresting women who are just sitting there peacefully observing and remembering someone who was murdered by a police officer. and raped and abducted. And as I said before, you know, the contrast with the events that happened at Wembley and all those white men storming, literally trying to do a reenactment of the uh, terrorist attack on our country here in the US at the Capitol building. Because no one wants to say that it's an attack on the country. Oh, it's, it's an attack on the building. No, it's not just an attack on a freaking building. It's an attack on the blooming country. If that was a bunch of black folk in there bum-rushing the show, I guarantee you, you'd be hearing, this was an attack on our nation. I'm telling you, you'd hear that. And you know it too. Of course you do. Come on now. But the whole point here of this opening is to just say that... As Dr. King said, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase this, you know, only light can drive the darkness out. Hate cannot do that. Love can. And these people who've responded to this mural have shown that. And people around the world have shown that. They've shown that. There's still more of the good people in the world than there are the bad. But it's the bad ones and the, or the people who are racist specifically those bad ones, who get all the headlines because that sells newspapers for the capitalist society. And it drives clicks on Twitter and on Insta and on Facebooky. I mean, come on. We all know how this story is. What about an atmosphere of goodness? It's not utopia. I'm talking about atmosphere of goodness, where we put that first and foremost. I would love that. And I know you would too. There's so many more headlines, believe me, but... Well, I think I'll leave it there. Welcome back. So now the heart of the matter, and this is really the focus of this episode, and that's about obstacles. You know, I've said in the past that sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Whether we are trying to go through life and get to certain stages in life and certain destinations in our lives, we can be at times our own worst enemy. And so that's one thing I do want to put on the table and lay it out there because it's true. And sometimes, as I've said before in the past as well, parents can be the biggest killer of a child's dreams. Now, I lay those two things on the table just as a kind of rough exposition. Um, but those two things aren't actually going to be the things I deal with particularly. Those are just parameters of how we sometimes, you and I, us, as people in society, are trapped. Not that that's personally happened to you or me, because 
that's not happened to me personally, but and it may not have happened to you personally either. But there are people who have experienced this with people lowering their expectations of them. Whether it's teachers, whether it is your parents, whether it is someone else in your family, maybe it might be even your spouse. Well, geez, that's not exactly support then, is it now? But the point I am making is, is that that happens. There are obstacles. There are things that are in the way, people in the way sometimes. And not to mention this system that is controlled by a small few that puts these obstacles in our way as well on a, in an institutional level, on an institutional basis. You know, the idea that there are these roadblocks you have to keep jumping over or smashing through. You pass a certain test and then the goalposts get moved. You pass that test and then... The bar is raised a bit higher. You pass that test, the bar is raised a little higher still. Those things happen institutionally. So I've dealt with the level of people around you, some of whom may doubt you, some of whom may say, well, you're not supposed to go this far. This is a little bit too much for you. Can you handle it? Can you, can you, can you, can you handle it? Can you, can you, can you? So you got that and the doubters and the nabobs and the, and the haters, the people who are waiting for you to fail. Some of those people in that contingent are wait, just waiting for you to fail because they don't want you to succeed where they have failed or they don't want you to succeed where they have not even tried. You know people like this. You've experienced people like this. I know you have, dear listener. So there's that level. Then there's the institutional level where you've got the roadblocks. And if you're black, forget it. You know what I'm talking about. You pass all these tests, you whip their ass, and now they raise the bar some more on your ass. And they do it again and again and again. There's so many millions of stories of this happening to us, no matter where we are in the world. We ace these tests, they do some bullshit. We do this test, we, they do some more bullshit. We, we do all these other things, then they give us some test about how many friggin' jelly beans are there in a blooming jar. They do all these things. Then when we get the judges correct, how many judges are there in the county, then they pull some other garbage. And this is what they did to black folk in the South. How many bubbles are there in a bar of soap? Yeah, I'm not making that up. I've talked about this before. Dear listener, you know this. If you've been a regular listener to the Politocrat Daily Podcast, you know that this happened. And it didn't happen that long ago at all. So there's the institutional level. But I want to get to something that immerses all of us every day. That's the entertainment level and the level of ecosystem that we tune into every day. Whether it's podcasts, (laughs) whether it's podcasts, whether it's the news, whether it is something on television that you really enjoy, But I'm talking about on news level television. 
Because you have to admit this, dear listener, that news isn't about news anymore in a great many countries. And there are always exceptions. But news in the 21st century isn't really about news anymore on television. It's about spectacle. It's about how things look. It's about click, click, click on Twitter, online. It's about all of that. Monetizing content, tweets, this, that. Everybody does it, right? And then these news people do it. And these are the obstacles that are in our homes, and the institutions aren't necessarily always in our homes, but the television is, or the iPhone is, which I talked about yesterday, or social media is, you can take it with you, contrary to popular movie belief. You can take it with you, right? So these things are always with us and around us. I'm talking about the the ears that the people who whisper into your ear, right? And what I'm really talking about here, about obstacles, are the people who really shape thought. Now, some people might actually say that I'm one of those people. And any podcast you listen to, there are a great many people, perhaps yourselves, who would say that the podcast you listen to, whether that includes this one or whether it doesn't, is a shaper of thoughts for you. What are they called now? Influencers. That term. And I'm going to get to that in a few moments too, by the way. But all of these little pinpoints of entities or people who now have become a part of your daily life. And they're not necessarily institutions and they certainly aren't necessarily your spouse or necessarily someone else in your family. These are people you tune into at a certain point of the day or night. On TV, operatively. In the news, essentially. Whether it is someone on here in the United States, MSNBC or Fox News, or CNN. Whether it is someone optimally on, well, whether it's someone in England or anywhere else in the UK, whether it's someone on Sky News, or someone on BBC News, or ITV News, or Channel 4 News, or this new network that I'm not even going to mention the name of, that's, you know, it's just a bunch of garbage. I mean, anyway. Or, or wherever you are in the world, right? And there are people shaping thoughts and also people telling you how you should think about something. Maybe you would include this podcast and myself in that or maybe you wouldn't. I hope that one thing I do, and I'd like to think that I do this, is try to get people to think in a different way but I, am I necessarily shaping people's thought? I guess I, in some level, on some level, perhaps I am. I would like to think that I'm offering a different way to think about something. So it's more along the lines, I hope, of critical thinking. And of an ability to shape the way you think rather than tell you what to think. 
And not that alone, in addition to that, urge you to act. I think that's really the most important thing, if I may toot my horn for a a quick second, that I like to think that I am doing. Because I'm going to kind of get that again here, get to that again here, I should say. To act. And my whole thing is, and I've talked about this before, and I think I may have talked about it yesterday. We do a lot of reacting, but I don't think some of us are proactive enough. Not even close. And so what I'm talking about here is that there are people shaping the way you approach an idea, approach an issue in politics particularly, and the way you might think about things. And I think that a lot of these issues, and I'm going to start from back in the 1960s with you, so please bear with me, and I'm going to try to go through this as clearly and as concisely as I can. In the 1960s, People were really active in so many different ways. Oh, God. I mean, I don't want to go to the summer of love because I think the summer of love is in some ways glorified because the reality of the summer of love in 1967 here in the U.S. and maybe overseas is that there are a lot of people, women, who were not getting love. They were getting raped. Right? That's that, that's something that doesn't really get talked about. And what also doesn't get talked about, and I apologize for triggering people, is that there was so much drug use, people were ODing. And what happens is that people, now when they talk about the summer of love, they romanticize a lot of that stuff. Oh, it was so lovely. It was free love. And yes, there was free love. There's no question about that. There was also VD, venereal disease. SDDs is what they're called these days. There was lots of that going around. So that doesn't get talked about as much. Lots of pregnancies, that doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot. Lots of people aborting fetuses. Because there was no Roe v. Wade in 1967. You have to wait another six years for that. So you see all of these things that don't get talked about. And then I, then I mean, I went to an exhibit here, by the way, in San Francisco a few years ago. And we went to, um, I forget the museum. I ah, forget the museum here in town. There's a lot of museums here, some really good ones. And it was about the Summer of Love exhibit. And it was so romanticized. And I, yeah, I've told this story many moons ago on here, if not on another iteration of this where you had all of this very romanticized notion of what the summer of 1967 was and the summer of 1967 people were absolutely in the streets railing against authority and against police and they were being killed by police Detroit 1967 I mean, there were people absolutely in the streets. There was uprisings in Detroit and elsewhere. All over the place in 67. Summer of love. I mean, it's like you couldn't be on a... It's as if you're on... You couldn't be on a more remote planet. Because it was so romanticized at this exhibit. And then the other thing is... The black section, excuse me, the black section of the exhibit... 
was literally limited to one corner of this huge ass exhibit, which covered many rooms. And the black section was literally what? Two square inches. I mean, it was such a, it was literally stuck in a corner and a old fashioned television set from 67 with Dr. King speaking on it. (laughs) Oh my goodness me. Uh, Three photographs of, (laughs) this is not funny. Three photographs of black people. (laughs) And that was that amongst a sea of white faces. Yeah, okay. Uh, but that's what happened. I mean, it's just, that's what happened in the exhibit. That's not what happened in real life in the summer of 67. That was not how it really went down. It's really something, isn't it? How people revise and pretend that history never happened. And then they try to gaslight your ass and pretend that, oh, yeah, you know, no, it didn't happen. It's like that old routine that Eddie Murphy once did in Eddie Murphy Raw. Or was it Eddie Murphy Delirious? I think it was Eddie, Eddie Murphy Raw. Yeah, 1987, 20 years after 67. Eddie Murphy Raw came out in the theaters. And there's a sequence in there where he's talking about being caught. Caught. Ass-handed. Cheating on his wife. And he and the woman he's cheating with are in the bed. And his wife literally comes in, lays eyes on the two of them. But naked. Eddie Murphy and butt naked, the woman he's cheating with. And Eddie Murphy literally turns around in the sketch that he's doing, right? In the joke, in the so-called, in the joke he's telling. He turns around to his wife who's standing there with her two eyes squarely focused on both of these people naked in her bed, right? And Eddie Murphy is turning around and and his wife is saying, what are you doing with that woman in my effing bed, right? And Eddie Murphy, and I'm paraphrasing because this is not exactly, exactly, but it's roughly this. And Eddie Murphy turns around and goes to his wife. It ain't me. Wasn't me. I saw you. I see you right here effing this woman. You're effing her in my bed. How dare you? What me. It's not me. It's like the guys, it's like total gaslight. And this is what happens to women all the time. And this is perpetrated by men all the time. It wasn't me. You didn't see me here. No, it's not me. I'm just giving her a lesson. I don't love her. I, I just do it, but I don't love her. Now, come on, some of you have experienced this. Some of you have been told this. Oh, it didn't mean anything. It's not me. And then finally, Eddie Murphy in the joke And if you haven't seen her or well, you know, I thought it was hilarious. It might be on Netflix now. And Eddie Murphy finally says to his wife, he admits, he goes, okay, damn it. I did it. Yeah, it was me. I did it. I, you know, and he he basically says, you know, I, I make love to you and I fuck her. I mean, that's what he says in the joke. I, I just couldn't not say it, right? And then the whole audience in the in the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden, where this was filmed, Eddie Murphy Raw, they all break out in laughter. And the reason I tell that story is, is because that is what happens to women, mostly women, gaslit by men, right? And I tie that back to the summer of 67 because 
we are told that, oh, it was all flower power and free love and, you know, the women were just giving everything away and the men were sticking themselves, sticking their you-know-what in every way they could. And, and, and it's like, no, that wasn't, I mean, yeah, that happened, but it was not all like that. There was still all these things going on in the society, you know, very, very serious things. Injustice and and people, black folk being murdered. You you know, you had all this stuff going on. That didn't stop. And so, you know, there's this romanticism. But the reason I start with the 60s is because in the 60s, people were a bit more bold, daring, by American standards. I don't know what that means, but, you know. The point is, is that people were active. People spoke their minds. And there was a real left in this country. There was an actual left. Because now there is no left left. There is no left left. There is no left remaining, right? It's all corporate now and watered down. And that's because in the 1970s, right, we got to the Powell memo in 71 and 72. Lewis Powell, businessman extraordinaire, but not extraordinary at all. Uh, He was a destructive figure. Um, Wrote this memo, and I've talked about this a billion times on this podcast, and I'm going to re-summarize it here real fast, that... Uh, American government now must reposition business at the center of it and all its endeavors. Otherwise, business will be endangered forever. These 1960s that went by, they symbolized uh, uh, this whole libidinous culture and this countercultural stuff that has allowed business to go under the radar and be absolutely flummoxed. And, you know, these middle-class families are beginning to gain a foothold and they are threatening business and the empire of business as we, as we know it. You know, that, I'm just paraphrasing all this, right? And that was Lewis Powell. Two, or th- two years later or so, he got on Nixon's Supreme Court. And the reason why I'm going to go through this is because by the time we got to Powell and the Powell Memo in 71 and 72, the left in the United States had been dead, had been killed, had been ended by authoritarian forces, police, government, Nixon, uh, basically the FBI, COINTELPRO. I mean, it was done. Hampton, Fred Hampton was murdered in 1969 and you know, come on. And that was after Malcolm X in 65. That was after Megan Evers in 63. Was Fred Hampton, not Malcolm. The Malcolm Malcolm came. Uh, actually, it was, was after Megan Evers in 65. Dr. King in 68. You had the Kennedy brothers in uh, 63. And in 1968, you had uh, uh, the treason of Nixon in 68. And, and the infamous phone call that LBJ made to Everett Dirksen, the Republican Senate leader out of Illinois. I mean, when President LBJ said, this is treason, Everett. And Everett Dirksen on the phone, I've played this before on this podcast. You can go back and search it. I've played a portion of the tape of the phone call. And Everett Dirksen, when he's told by LBJ, who is sitting there in the White House as president in 68, because of course, as you know, uh, in 1968, I believe it was, or 1967, whichever year, I think it was earlier in 68, LBJ said he's not running again. He did announce that, I think it was 68, uh, maybe April or March of 68. He announced, I'm not running again. I'm not seeking the nomination. 
So it was basically LBJ's swan song in 68. Then you had Vietnam raging on still. Vietnam was all in the heights. And don't forget the, the Bay of Pigs. You had the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which... Uh, it was on LBJ's watch. I mean, LBJ's the one that lied and said, oh, there's been this incident. And that was just BS, right? This is, under, this is under LBJ now. And then by the time we get to the Dirksen phone call with LBJ and Dirksen in 1968, I think it was um, October of 68, and it was, it was literally a few days before the November election. And Nixon had committed treason. And, and again, LBJ says that to Richard, to... Um, Everett Dirksen, and Dirksen replies, I know. I know. That's what he said. And Hoover was still in the FBI back then. Hoover had run through seven American U.S. presidents, and he survived, which tells you how much dirt he had on them. And they all knew it. These days, J. Edgar Hoover is Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's basically uh, who, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is today. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, Vladimir Putin absolutely has the number of you-know-who. I'm not going to mention his name. He's a piece of garbage. And there's so much publicity around him. And again, this is part of the problem that I'm going to get to real quickly and real soon. So by the time we get to the 1970s, you had the Powell memo, Lewis B. Powell. Powell got on the Supreme Court of Nixon. And we all know what happened to Nixon. The Watergate break-in. The Democratic National Convention headquarters at that hotel. And then the investigation of Nixon and the hearings in the House. And then Nixon was forced to resign in August of 1974 midway through his second term in office. And he won this second term on the, you know, law and order thing. Actually, he won the first term on that. Law and order, law and order. And my goodness me, Nixon exposed himself as the racist that he was, as the paranoiac that he was, and everything else. Taping everybody and, you know, the secretary, the missing 18 minutes of, of tape. 16 minutes, whatever it was, I think it was 18. Uh, all these things, right? So we get to this point. And in the media, right? The media has been covering Vietnam right in your face every day. Every day you see bodies, every day you see this, you see that, you see the other. And, and the US government said, never again, we are not allowing this. And then we got to all these things. But I want to get now, after we get through the 70s and the pardoning of Richard Nixon, we then get to... Jerry Ford, he didn't last too long in that job. There were one, if not two, assassination attempts against him, would you believe? Both in San Francisco, by the way. And both by women, by the way. I should add that, too. That's a trivia question. I think one of them is a member of the Global Moore family, although I instantly disown her. Sarah Ann Moore, Sarah Jane Moore, or something like that. I could be wrong. I'm saying this off the top of my head. You must understand, dear listener. I'm giving you this travelogue of, of history here from the top of my head. And uh, I think I'm pretty much on target here because it's really risky to do this and not have an idea what you're talking about. But I humbly suggest that I do. But we get through the 1970s and we have in the CIA, George H.W. Bush in the, in the 70s. 
and Ronald Reagan trying to run against Gerald Ford, right? So, for the Republican nomination. So, Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan in 76 in California, you know, California is where Reagan's from, although he's originally from Illinois, he was born there. Uh, Ford is from Michigan, ha ha ha, isn't that interesting? I think he's from Michigan, yeah, a Michigan lad. And the two of them had this bruising primary and the, pri- uh, the bruising uh, convention. I think the convention was held in California at the time. It was a, or, or somewhere anyway, I think it was, it was California, I think. It, it was just brutal. That Republican National Convention in 76, it was a brokered convention. It went on forever. It was heated. There were fights on the convention floor like they were in 1968 on the Democratic side in Chicago. Who can forget the Chicago National Convention? The Democratic National Convention in Chicago, excuse me. Then we got to this one in 76. It was just like the one in 68. It was pretty brutal. I don't believe that they were, I mean, police had to be called in at, at points to quell things, but it wasn't on the order of 68. The bottom line here is that after all this back and forth, Reagan made a compromise and he ended up ceding ground and calling off the dogs after a day or two of very rancorous proceedings on the floor. And Jerry Ford became the nominee. Bottom line is, is that all that rancor ended in a win for Jimmy Carter in 76 in the presidential election. And it's interesting because the very same thing happened four years later to the Democrats. The convention for the Democrats was exactly like the, almost exactly like the one in 1976 for the Republicans. Except it was Ted Kennedy who was not going quietly on that stage. He was not going gently into the night. Just like he didn't go gently into the night in 1960, what, nine, seven? Mary Jo Kopechny, she went gently into the night. Or shall I say, she drowned. Or shall I say, Ted Kennedy allowed that to happen. Or shall I say, Ted Kennedy made no attempt to try to save her life. And that's the system that allows these powerful white men to skate and then run for something. And it's just incredible that 11 years after that, the boy was running the lab, the Kennedy boy was running for president. I mean, fucking hell. I mean, this is just unbelievable. But it's not unbelievable because that's the system for you that doesn't value women as human beings. So you can let someone basically kill. You can basically let someone die. It's not funny at all. And then just run for freaking president 11 years later like nothing happened. Ah, it's frightening. That should scare the living shit out of you, out of me, and out of us. Oh, my goodness me. I'm going to have to take a break here because I want to get to the central theme. And believe me, I'm on track to do so right after this. Welcome back. So I want to just lay this out some more. And I said I'd be brief, but (laughs) famous last words. 
But thank you for sticking with me here and, and for listening to this podcast. And uh, I am immensely appreciative as always. Let's continue with this. And this is the final portion of this to get to the point of what I want to really get to. But I have to lay it out the way I do for it to really unfold in a way that contextually you really see and feel and hear and envision as you hear it, when you put these pieces together, because I believe in connecting dots. Connecting dots is essential. You don't just put things in a vacuum and hope they just happen in a vacuum, because nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing, 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 nothing. Not even random things happen in a blooming vacuum, <laughs> at least in my view. I, I, you know, again. But I left you off with uh, Ted Kennedy and, and you know, the, uh, the abomination that a system does. It's not even in the, it's, it, the, the a system that is built to be a well-oiled killing machine does this. And I've talked about the well-oiled killing machine system of this country. And it's not just a system that's nameless or face, faceless. It has rich families and people who are very rich and people in power all over that who are usually white and usually male. And you will have a few black folk in there and a few Asian folk in there and a few Latino folk in there as well. And a few women of all hues, H-U-E-S, in there as well, not H-U-G-H-E-S. And, and but, but the point is, because you have a few women there or a few black folk in there or a few, you know, have whatever there, right? It doesn't mean, it, that, that doesn't eradicate what's going on, right? And it's still a white entrenched system of power, power, right? And so that allows for a Ted Kennedy. Oh my God, and every, and all the, the Kennedys, my goodness. I mean, that allows him to run for freaking president, right? And then you get a, a Bill Clinton and you get a you-know-who, you-know-who that is, the, the guy that is turned tail and ran out of there before sunrise earlier this year. And you get these kinds of people, and the system is entirely the reason they are there, particularly the guy that turned tail and ran and organized, or he can't organize his way out of a bloody paper bag. The guy that championed and spearheaded the terror attack on this country earlier this year, in January. That guy. Right? And the system allowed for him to be there. And so that he could get money from... Deutsche Bank, right? And over and over again, and he defaulted on every... And they still kept loaning money. And no one else would but them, right? So that's at the end of the story, but it's not part of the story because my point is the media. Because you had media that dealt with the fairness doctrine and that meant that equal time was given to contrasting or conflicting viewpoints. So if you had someone on from one side on your television program or your news program, you were to have, and duty-bound, to have the other side. It's what you had to have. It's an FCC regulation. You had to have both sides on. That's why there's both sides thing, you know? Both sides, both sides, both sides. I can't stand both sides, but both sides. There's two letters, right? Initials to those two words. Both sides, BS. There's only one side, you know. It's the corporate money side. It's the money. Anyway, let me not get too far ahead of myself and too wrapped up in my own cynicism here, dear listener, to tell you this. That the Fairness Doctrine was something that had been around for a number of years. And 
it allowed for both. <laughs> it allowed for these two competing opinions to be equally aired for equal time. Right. And the bottom line, and that was part of the fairness doctrine. I don't have the exact uh, language to bear. But the bottom line is, is that in 1987, Ronald Reagan, who was a TV pitch man in the 1950s in the General Electric Theater, right? Hawking his wares, hawking products, hawking cigarettes, hawking this, hawking that. General Electric Theater, he hosted that blooming thing. He was also the Screen Actors Guild president, not once, but twice at least. And he became the governor of this here state in California, right? The Golden State, you know, he became the governor in the 1960s. He's also the same Ronald Reagan, who when there were the Black, Pan when the Black Panthers, and I can't forget them, from Oakland, California. That's where they're from originally. The Black Panthers got started there, you know. And so when the Black Panthers walked onto the steps of uh, the state capitol building in Sacramento, California, in 1966-67, with their guns, the governor of the state, Ronald Reagan, said, oh, open carry, canceled. Next day, boom, no more open carry in the state of California. California used to be an open carry state, but when black folk carried their guns, ooh, some of the white citizenry got very nervous, you know. That's a horrible accent because that's supposed to be a southern accent, but it's California. So how does that work? But they got, ooh, so nervous because only white people could carry guns. Black folk, no. You're not supposed to have those, you know. Them dare guns don't belongs to you. Even though, of course, we all know that open carry is open carry, except if you are black. Because supposedly you are the gun, right? Because that's how these cops treat you. But it's, it's not us. We are not the problem here. The system is. And the people who work under that system with their guns and their badges are the problem. Right? And the system, which is a well-oiled killing machine, ain't going to change that anytime soon. So someone has to do some work here. Right. But the point is here is that all of that happened. And then this guy, speaking of systems that allow wretched people to run for president and then become president in Reagan's case, he became president in 1980 on treason. If I can get you guys to release them hostages in Iran a little late, hold off. Don't do it now while Jimmy Carter's in office. Wait, I guarantee you, when we win this election, <laughs> that's a terrible voice. That's not even how Reagan sounds. When we win this election, I can guarantee you that we will release these hostages. You have my word on that. That's the most pathetic Ronald Reagan accent. Impression <laughs> of Ronald Reagan accent. What does that mean? Anyway, so they, look, but this is what happened. And he was a private citizen running for office saying this. And again, like Nixon, these Republicans, they love committing treason. They love to hate the country called the U.S. of A. They hate it more than anybody does. These freaking Republicans, they freaking hate the country. Why do you think they're exploiting it? Why do you think they're trying to stop you from voting? If they loved America, the U.S. of A, they would love for you to vote, but they don't 
because they love power more than they love the country. They love power more than they love you because they hate you and they hate the country too. I think that rhymes, you know. So Reagan gets into power through treason, lies. The hostages released after the election and when it's clear that Reagan's won, right? And not before the election when Carter would have benefited and probably stayed in office, even though there was lots of things going on during Jimmy Carter's time. And, you know, there were some things about him or things that, you know, he got his way was lost a little bit in that during some of those four years. But the point is, he, he did things that people didn't like. He told the truth, <laughs> you know, Debbie, the so-called Debbie Downer speech, right? He told the freaking truth. And that's what I've been to. I played the audio of that last year during the April month, month of April of uh, last year during the pandemic in its heights or the pandemic still is in its heights. Delta variant. But the point I'm making here is that all of this happens. And by the time we get to 1987 in the second year of Reagan's in the, in the last years of Reagan's second term. It's over. In 1987, the FCC under Reagan scraps the Fairness Doctrine. So now, open sesame. You don't have to have people with competing viewpoints getting the same amount of time. And hey, presto, we've got the 1996 with Bill Clinton. Oh, Bill Clinton. What's so special about him? Well, apart from the whole sexual harassment of Monica Lewinsky. What's so special, although that's not a special thing, because people loved him in this country, even after that, would you believe? You got two terms, you know, and I can say I voted for him. And I did vote for him twice. Oh, my God. But the whole point here is this, is that the 1996 Telecommunications Act, that he and Al Gore, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Al Gore, who now is a hero of the environment, they introduced this thing with such glee and relish. If you go back and do some... YouTube searches and C-SPAN searches, you'll see them absolutely parading down the friggin' aisle, basically, about the TCC Telecommunications Act of 1996 and one of the most destructive pieces of legislation ever. <laughs> it was. It got rid of all this stuff. You know, all the, the fairness doctrine was gone and equal time was gone. All this stuff was gone. And then it spawned Fox News two years later. So in 1998, you had Fox News. Then MSNBC came around. Then you had all this other stuff. And then you have OAN, OANN or whatever the hell it is now. And all this other garbage, Newsmax. And there's no requirement for them to have anything balanced on there. It's just one freaking Republican after another on MSNBC it's mostly Democrats. But you know what? The whole landscape of media, thanks to the TCA, Telecommunications Act of eighty of 96, has changed completely. It's all Republican-owned and conservative-owned. So God forbid they do have an MSNBC, and that's far from perfect. God forbid they have it, right? When all of this stuff is all right-wing and conservative anyway, and the media, like 97, 98% of it, is run by conservatives and it's conservative-oriented and Republican-oriented. Are you kidding? All across the U.S. of A. You'll find hotel rooms stacked with Fox News before you'll find MSNBC on many of those places. You have to hunt for it. Hunt for the damn thing. Like you're hunting for a... I don't know what. Jesus. I'm not into hunting animals. I know who is, though. 
And I know who is into taking pictures with dead ones. You know? Then you wonder, what's the connection? They're taking pictures with dead lions on the African continent. And then here in the United States. Hmm, 1950s, 40s, 30s. Posing white families with lynched black people. Oh, I see. Hmm. Ah, dear, dear. You don't have to go back very far in history now, do you? Bottom line is the TCA gave us all of these stations. And then you got opinion journalism, which meant you didn't have to present facts. You could be Fox News and lie your ass off all day. You can have O-A-N-N-N-N-N-N and have all these conspiracy theories and all this bullcrap and have millions of people tune in and believe you. Just like Fox. It was, it's Fox. And all these other networks and the Rush Limbaugh's and all these people line their ass off. These Tucker Carlson's and, you know, these racists like him and, you know, they, they take their hood off and then put it on when they leave the studio. Well, they really should be putting it on when they are in the studio. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. I mean, if Tucker Carlson sat there with a hood on, a clan hood on, I mean, would anybody move a muscle? Would anybody flinch and be surprised? I mean, it'd be all over Twitter. But nobody would be surprised by that. It would get lots of clicks, lots of people talking. And we need to start acting and be proactive, not reacting to every little bullcrap thing that Tucker Carlson says or any of these other people. But the point is, is that you've got these people shaping you now. And then you've got other people. And then you've got pundits. And there's a whole opinion industry out there. It's not journalism. Opinion journal. It's not journalism, okay? It's people sitting there being paid to say something, anything. And they get paid very handsomely. Thank you very much. And so now... Thoughts, and I talked about shaping thought in the previous segment. And now thought is all about opinion, 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 opinion. In the news, in your living room, it's all around you. And it's nothing you can do about it unless you turn it off. Because it ain't going away. I dare say the Patriot Act amplified this from the TCA of 1996. And so now you have a whole cottage industry of pundits. Punditry. The pundit class. And all they do is sit around the table and talk. It's not news that they're talking. It's their own opinions based on the fact that maybe some of them have done some time in politics. And they're all navel-gazing. And then we all react to that bullcrap. And that's what I mean. Then we get on Twitter and react to all of it. And it's really an industry that doesn't belong. The pundit class. Why do we need... And again, there's some people who follow me who are part of that class. Or were following me <laughs> on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L. Now look now or listen per- perfectly if you can. This has been going on for years now, and it's a whole industry of these people who are shaping everything, and they're just paid to talk. 
they're making a lot of money. May not be millions for some of them, but they're making lots of money. The hosts are making millions. And some of these people are not very smart or competent. And they're not very good at what they do. Right? Some of them are not. Some of them are not great journalists either. They ain't great shakes at all. They're there because networking. Because they've got a family member who's very rich. Because, 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 because. Like the Beatles song says, or goes. Well, not quite like that, but you know the song. Because off of, off of the Abbey Road album, I might add. But there you go. You see, this is the thing, dear listener, is that now in 2021 and beyond, you're being shaped by people who are just paid to provide an opinion. No, I provide opinions, right? I'm not getting paid millions of dollars to do that. And I wouldn't call myself a member of the pundit class. I'm not. But, you know, if you look at television now, news, in the United States and in other countries, a lot of it is pundit class. A lot of it is pundit class, even in sports, ESPN, you know, I've never, they've, they, they've cut this back a bit because of budgets and all that. And they had eight, nine people sitting around a, a desk on ESPN NFL Live game day. They used to have five, six, seven people. Literally, I remember. When I used to, when I, that's when I used to watch the NHL. Whenever it was, it was a, at least four or five years ago. And then the ESPN got wise. ESPN is such a cesspool. And ESPN got hip and said, well, we better stop this because it's costing us way too much money. And they let a load of those people go and they limited it now to, I think I flicked over once last season. Um, and it was just one or two people. And that simplicity had been numbers is much better. <laughs> you know, I was going to say something else, but I decided not to. You know, numbers, passion, you know. But that's the thing. So all of this now is what you're watching if you watch TV. And a lot of people don't have a television to watch. And that's by choice, not necessarily only or because they literally don't have a TV. Because they can watch stuff on their phones now. We all can on our iPads or phones or laptops if we have them. And it's just all this thought is being shaped. So someone said this, and then on Twitter, you've got people who aggregate Twitter and do what they do on Twitter say, oh, reaction pours into what someone said last night on TV. I mean, that's not frigging news. That is not blooming news. But we're reacting to that stuff. It's so poisonous. These social media companies, they play a huge role in all of this. So does the Telecommunications Act, as I described it in 1996. So does the Fairness Doctrine being scrapped in 1987 by Reagan's FCC. I talked about that. But my goodness, this pundit class and the opinion journalists, there's no such thing as an opinion journalist. By definition, it's kind of an oxymoron. Journalists go out there and sum up news and, you know, report on it. They don't provide their own opinion. I mean, unless they're asked some question by someone in the newsroom, right? On remote, well, Jessica, Johanna, or, you know, Jesse, who, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, is there any news on this? And how do you, what do you think is going to happen? And that's where they provide their opinions, the only time. But then you've got, that's different from people behind a desk in a studio who spend an hour talking opinion. 
Now, they may have some news, but it's mostly opinion. And it's, there's no such thing. I don't, oh, maybe you will disagree, maybe you won't. I just don't see the opinion journalist. They don't teach you that in journalism school. So then how the hell does that now come up on television? Well, I've explained why. And it's really turning our brains to mush, just like these so-called smartphones are. Automating our brains now, as I said yesterday, we can't even do anything. You can't even do anything. We want everything put in our lap. Jeez, we want to be levitated over to every place we go to. And that's next, right? You can pay to be levitated and you can get there in two minutes. Just put down your life savings and we'll just do a test run for you. I mean, we're going to get to that point where you will just levitate. We will be doing nothing. I mean, that's what this technology, technological society has done. And technology is a part of this too. All of these variables have become obstacles. And while there are some positive things about technology, as I've suggested before, as recently as yesterday, there are some darn not so good things either. And when you add all this imbroglio together, you get sentient beings who turn into vegetables. Horrible thing to say, but it's true. Horrible terminology. And we don't want that. Can't have that. We've got to have thinkers, man. We've got to have thinkers. And it's, it's just, oh, dearie me, I do wonder about where we're going. And these are obstacles for us, and we've got to break through them because we're so easily swayed to, if we watch, those of us who do, because I don't, but if you do, maybe you don't either, right? American Idol, and you can press a button or two to vote for somebody on American Idol, but you won't go out and vote for the freaking future of, the, of your blooming self and the blooming kids and your grandkids? Come on. But that's where we are in the United States and elsewhere. We are like that. And all this opinion, journalism, and all this social media telling you, ooh, did you see the little battle that went on between these two people on The Real Housewives of Fill in the Blank? Or this battle going on between these two artists? Or the, the little comment that little Jay-Z or G, Young Yeezy or Jeezy or whatever the fuck the name of the rapper is today had with some other person? Oh, that's Twitter. Oh, my God. This has become a real problem. And this is the kind of garbage that turns our brains to mush and to mush and to mushy peas, which is why I've said we've got to get off Twitter for every every now and again. I know it's tough. Take a few hours away from it. Take a day away from it. I really will do that very soon. I've said this before, and I will. I will because the... And I do it every every now and again. I will take some time away from Twitter. It's a really good thing to do. You don't miss it, and it doesn't miss you. It continues on whether you're on there or not. So you may as well take some time for yourself. Maybe during the time you take, you or someone else, we as people, can actually be proactive about the very important things, right? The voting, the this, the that, the other, the healthcare, the, 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 the education of others. We can do this, and we can do all of it. And we need to have clear minds and clear hearts and clear thinking, critical thinking, which is not what you always get at all on these so-called opinion shows, these opinion journalist shows. Radio still is king, and maybe podcasts are too. 
And there's some good people out there on TV and on radio and podcasts who do these things and are pretty darn good at them. But this punditry class and all of this social media around, did you see what young Jeezy said about this person and what this person said about that person? And it's just so playground stuff, isn't it? That's what you did when you were six years old, right? Ooh, someone said something about that one and this one. It's just pathetic. But people are making billions of dollars off of this. The pundit class is getting or getting around and and just absolutely having a field day. And then they say something stupid, one of them, and then we all react to that. But what are we doing to move this world forward, to move the country that you live in forward, to hold politicians accountable? What are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing? What are we doing? We've got to be doing something and we've got to start now. And that's my motorcycle ride. So I've got to get out of here. It really is my motorcycle ride. Not. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Hopefully you see where I'm coming from here. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore. Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the Black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in Black-owned businesses, the Black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it.